This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. We just talked about some of the day's COVID and vaccine headlines. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, he spoke to Bloomberg's David Weston earlier today at the Bloomberg Business Week live event, and they talked about the possibility of another COVID wave. We don't want to declare victory prematurely, but if we can get the 70% of adults vaccinated with at least one dose by the 4th of July, the way the president has set the goal, I think the chances of there being a surge or a rebound is extremely low. That's the reason why we want to continue to get people vaccinated. All right, and that, of course, was Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, catching up with our David Weston at the Bloomberg Business Week live event. Let's talk about the latest on COVID and the vaccine. Sabra Klein is professor of molecular microbiology and immunology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Her research uncovering the mechanisms mediating how males and females differ in their immune responses to viral infection and vaccination. She's also co-director of the Center for Women's Health, Sex, and Gender Research. She is with us on the phone in Baltimore. Sabra, nice to have you here uh, with Tim and me. So Dr. Anthony Fauci, I think, surprised us by some of the things he had to say about maybe we won't need a booster, talking about the possibility of another COVID wave. What's the reality? What are the discussions you all have at Johns Hopkins about maybe what's next from here, the good and the bad? I, I think I think the good... The good news is that the vaccines are proving to be excellent and they're proving to be protective against some of these variants, um, including the variant that was initially identified in the United Kingdom, um, which has is quite prevalent now here in the United States. So I, I think that is very good news. And I think that likely contributed to the CDC's um, recommendation uh, that that those of us who are vaccinated are allowed to be unmasked um, outdoors and in some situations indoors. Um, I think the the what we see in other countries cause us to pause and probably cause Dr. Fauci to remind all of us that that just because we are our numbers of cases are down here in the United States. Um, and we're getting so many people vaccinated that we're still not completely out of the weeds. So, you know, I think they're trying to, to, you know, emphasize that for anybody who is hesitant at this moment about receiving the vaccine, but want to go and be in public settings without a mask, they got to get vaccinated. And we have so many millions of people who've been vaccinated that are understanding about the safety and efficacy of these vaccines is tremendous. They are safe and they are efficacious. Yeah, to that point, Dr. Klein, it does seem like, and look, it's been a week since we got that news from the CDC about being able to take masks off if in certain yeah. situations if we are vaccinated. Yeah. It does really feel like, and, and, and look, this is my impression, but correct, and correct me if I'm wrong, but 
if you have been vaccinated with with one of the vaccines available for emergency yeah. use authorization in the U.S., it's it's like seems like it's back to life as as normal. It is. It has it has that flavor and that potential, and and I think you know I think this is this is so important, and I think from a public health perspective, this is so important because. If, if those of us who work with these vaccines, study these vaccines, know these vaccines to be both safe and efficacious, if we believe in how well they're working, if we believe the data, which I do, that have come out about the effectiveness of these vaccines against the variants, then we should be able to take our masks off and, and trust that we will be protected, in particular against severe disease. Um, no vaccine is going to be 100%. So as your listeners may have, you know, those, those one-off stories of somebody who got vaccinated but who still got infected, I'm even thinking about our story about, about the Yankees. Yeah. Um, you know, it is going to happen, but I think what needs to be appreciated is this is precisely what can happen during a typical flu season. As, as we prepare for the flu season in the coming fall, we know that vaccines, they reduce the probability of severe illness and death. They may not completely prevent you from ever getting infected. And I think that's what we're seeing in, in some circumstances with the current, um, current SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. And the other thing is, Tim and I were talking about before we got going, about how scientists are racing to figure out the so-called correlates of, uh, correlates of yes. protection against COVID. In other yes. words, which test results assure immunity? I mean, we don't exactly know when the protection yeah. from these vaccines is expected to wane. It's tricky. We don't necessarily have the tests yet, right, to tell us exactly that. You phrased all of that beautifully. That is all completely correct. And, you know, I think as these companies were, were you know, very acutely aware of how important it was to get these vaccines and determine their safety and define their efficacy based on the ability of the vaccine at present, preventing, excuse me, severe disease and illness, they weren't going and then doing the more detailed assessments that mm. researchers like my, myself typically do. So now you've got to let the rest of us catch up, do mm. our very detailed analyses, study this durability, study the types of immune responses, and see which of those immune responses best predicts. Okay, so when we say a correlative protection, we're looking for what is that measure of your immunity that best predicts protection. Professor Klein, I, I want to get right into it when it when it comes to the questions that so many mm -hmm. people have about pregnant women and vaccines. Mm -hmm. What do we know right now? What we know right now is we have through the um, the CDC reporting system, um, there have been thousands of pregnant women who've received the available COVID-19 vaccines. They have been proven to be safe um, in pregnant women. There is no evidence that these vaccines are causing um, adverse reactions, either serious or non-serious, at, at a higher rate in pregnant women. So, and, and I think now knowing and having considerably more data over the course of this pandemic that infection can uh, 
result in, you know, serious effects on pregnancy outcomes, including things like preterm birth. Um, I think pregnant women, um, and the recommendation by the CDC is that pregnant women in their second or third trimester should definitely be getting getting vaccinated, excuse me. What do, though, pregnant women need to understand about kind of how this vaccine mm-hmm. works to kind of feel more self-assured um, or, or are confident about getting it? Absolutely. So, you know, I think the, the, the nature of these platforms and the terminology that's used for these platforms, mRNA, virus vector vaccines, these can sound quite intimidating as though they could do something off target either to the pregnant woman or their baby. And there is absolutely nothing to be concerned about. These are not causing infections in us. These are vaccines that through their delivery mechanisms are stimulating our cells um, to to make, in this case, the spike antigen, um, which is what our immune system um, recognizes in the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's just protein, so it can't Mm. replicate, it can't infect, it can't do anything to harm either the pregnant woman or her fetus. So, um, yeah. Professor Klein, I just want to jump in because how would you answer the question if somebody came to you and said, but wait a second, we don't yet know if the vaccine has an effect on a baby in two, three, five, ten years? Absolutely. I would say that there's no evidence from any vaccine ever that there are those types of long-term effects. But what there is ample evidence of is in utero um, infection um, during pregnancy can have long-term implications on the baby one, two, five, ten years later, even in cases where the virus itself is not transmitted to the baby. So I, I think I think pregnant women need to be considerably more concerned that the probability of getting infected and, and getting sick, very sick, and having to potentially be hospitalized is greater if you're not vaccinated. It's greater for pregnant than non-pregnant women. And the one way to mitigate this is by getting vaccinated. All right, some good advice. And I want to just mention uh, one thing, because I heard somebody talking about this too, the CDC recommendation that women who need mammograms try to get them before vaccination or six weeks after a vaccination because of swollen lymph nodes under their arm. Like we are finding out more information so that you have an understanding about when to do these things. Yeah, again, this is... uh I don't want to say it's a science experiment, but we're watching the research play out in real time right now. And each day we do learn more and more, but still so many questions, especially when it comes to that question that you asked, Carol, to what extent does the, do these vaccines last past six, eight, 10 months? Right, exactly. We don't know yet, yeah. right? Because we've done it a little bit differently. Dr. Sabra Klein, she's professor of molecular microbiology and immunology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, co-director of the Center for Women's Health, Sex, and Gender Research. Great to have her back with us on the phone from Baltimore. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Sarah Fryer, she has been following how social networks circulate information for years, and her latest reporting in the magazine covers how social networks are exporting 
disinformation about the COVID vaccine and Tim exporting is the key word. Yeah, it certainly is. Content that's blocked or flagged in the U.S. often continues to circulate in other languages. The, Joel, the, the question that I have whenever I read a story about content moderation in Facebook is, these companies are the most powerful technology companies with the brightest minds. Why can't they get this under control? Well, they can, um, and they've been cracking down on it. But in the case of the story that um, Sarah did, the the problem becomes um, that things get lost in translation, or that more more accurately, um, translations are still getting out there with the misinformation. So, so Sarah, can you help us get to the bottom of this? Why does it keep happening? Well, in this case, the global pandemic, it's a different situation than we've seen in the past. We've had this debate about Facebook and YouTube for years, the fact that they really just don't have people who understand and can moderate content in all the languages that they offer their services in. They're machine learning for finding uh, vaccine misinformation and harmful misinformation is, is only proficient in about a dozen languages, and Facebook is offered in more than 100 languages. So just, just keep that in mind. Um, but the, the difference with this pandemic is it's a, it's a phenomenon that is global. And the information that is coming and circulating globally, it, it has a similar potency to U.S. pop culture, uh, researchers told me. I mean, this is just it's what, what we're talking about here. We've had access to the vaccine sooner here than they have in other countries. And that culture of the, the debates, the rumors, the things that have already gone viral and gotten banned or gotten labeled in the U.S. on YouTube and Facebook have then been translated into other languages and, and are having a whole other cycle elsewhere and outside of the realm of these tools that can, can really bring it under control. And just for our audience, you recognize her voice, Bloomberg News technology reporter and author of No Filter, the inside story of Instagram, Sarah Fryer. She's with us from San Francisco. And of course, Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber, right here I was in just so excited I to know. talk to our friends that I forgot to tell everyone <laughs> hey, who everybody. Who are these voices yeah, exactly. talking to me? But, but Sarah, you know, we do have uh, the technology available to us. And I believe Skype does it, like real-time translations in, in many different languages. And it's just so hard for me to, to, to understand why, if this type of machine learning is available, it is still so challenging for these companies to, to get this under control. Well, every time something new occurs, you have to train a model to find the images mm. that um, that correspond with that problem and and understand the local context. Maybe people don't call it um, the same. There is a lot of colloquialisms around how you describe immunization. There are a lot of um, a lot of content that that may go viral in the U.S. Uh, and and may not pop up for months elsewhere, and so I think that the um, the issue really is one of investment. It's the fact that these companies have only just started to crack down strongly in English, and even then, I, I don't know about you, but I see so many rumors still circulating in English that people who are talking about you know uh, the false notion that that the Pfizer-Moderna vaccine can shed uh, to others or cause infertility. All of those, all of those things, those harmful things are still spreading. So the English version of this is not proficient. You just need to imagine that if you are witnessing this media environment in English, 
that is definitely worth in any other language. I, I thought that was particularly interesting. It, there's a paragraph in the story about Arabic subtitles in, in particular. Can you tell us about that one and, and what um, a review by the Institute of Strategic Dialogue found? So the, the Institute of Strategic Dialogue found that there were these U.S.-originated videos of, of women shaking and convulsing purportedly after getting the shot, um, but they were obviously, you know, lacking context and, and they wasn't verified. And then uh, they were labeled as needing to be fact-checked in the U.S. on Facebook. But those same videos, exactly the same content, just with Arabic subtitles, were not caught by the same machine learning algorithms in in Arab language countries. So, so I think that this is what we've seen happen over and over is that this, the U.S drama occurs and gets evaluated and and we saw it also with the even before the era of vaccines we saw it with the pandemic video i don't know if you guys remember mm -hmm. that was oh, the, yeah. the highly conspiratorial video a documentary that um you know went and had millions of views on facebook and youtube before it was taken down finally by the platforms for its harmful impact and that video was circulating in other countries for days, becoming a problem before it was addressed in other languages. So what do the social media companies say, Sarah, when it comes to basically policing platforms outside the U.S.? It is really not that transparent. Facebook still does not disclose how many moderators it has in a certain language. Um, you know, any comparative data on how its work in the U.S. compares or in Europe compares to, to work elsewhere. Um, we get bulk statistics from, from companies like, like Alphabet, Google, and YouTube, but we do not have any transparency into the actual effectiveness. We are relying on this anecdotal research from people who, who spend their whole career looking at this problem and they're telling us that this is the trend that they're seeing. But um, but I really think that in order to get to the bottom of this, we're going to need a lot more information from these companies that have now had, had so much control over our global information diet. Sarah, I know you've spent months reporting on, on misinformation when it comes to vaccines on these platforms and years reporting on these platforms in, in the research for your book. Um, Give us the motivation for people who do spread this disinformation in just the last 30 seconds that we have with you. It is about being a personality on the Internet, about getting that engagement, and in some cases about making money. I mean, the, the people who are telling you that vaccines are, are scary and possibly harmful, they're also trying to sell you alternatives. They're saying, buy my supplements instead or, you know, come to my mindfulness retreat instead. Um, listen to my podcast. And, and so I think there is a commercial aspect. There is an ego aspect to this. And, and there's some people who, who really have fallen down the rabbit hole and believe it and are trying to, to keep each other safe. And, and those are the people that we need to make sure get the right information. Well, great continuing coverage, Sarah. Thank you so much. Bloomberg News technology reporter, author of No Filter, the inside story of Instagram, Sarah Fryer, on the phone in San Francisco. Our thanks to Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber, in our interactive brokers studio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
This is, I'm just checking, it's our most read story on the Bloomberg in the past eight hours. It's about Morgan Stanley now, the latest big U.S. bank to shake up its leadership. So here with his scoop is Bloomberg News finance reporter Sri Natarajan. He's in our interactive broker studio. So, <laughs> you know where I want to go. I'm looking at the visual. I know everybody's saying it. So four white guys. Thank God we're on radio. And good thing we're on radio. But on YouTube, I don't know if everybody can see this. Wait, I'm going to lower it it's down. It's all over Twitter, too. Here it is. Yeah, it's all over Twitter. Um, did James Gorman not get the memo? Look, I think to be completely fair, Morgan Stanley would probably tell you that this is a moment in time snapshot. Even before diversity was a buzzword on Wall Street, this is a firm that had Ruth Porat as its CFO. Six years ago, she left and went to Google right. uh, and rose higher there. And then there was Zoe Cruz before the financial crisis around, around that time, 2007, 2008, when she was the co-president of the firm. So Morgan Stanley has had women in senior leadership roles. Of course, it's a separate question why they've not been able to climb to the highest rank, right. but it would not be totally fair to say that Morgan Stanley stands out different from every other bank. But at a time that we are in right now, where you're seeing succession planning everywhere, and you know when the senior leaders are thinking about- And on the heels the, of JP Morgan. What the future looks like. It does, it does strike a bit of a discordant note, but if your CEO is 62 and the next generation is in the mid 50s, you still have a Wall Street that is populated with you know, old white men in that yeah. bracket who have that experience, who have rose through the ranks, who've got that divisional experience across the board. Mm -hmm. The real pipeline, and it is coming up elsewhere, perhaps not as fast as it should be, but the real pipeline is probably in the late 30s and the early 40s, mid 40s generation. And that crew is still a while away from getting the top perch at any major institution. Yeah, the new co-presidents are, are Ted Pick is 52, Andy Saperstein 54. Um, who are these people and, and who is this quartet? Well, Ted Pick is, of course, uh, you know, seen as the turnaround artist at Morgan Stanley. He started his career out as an ECM banker, equity capital markets. He helped with the IPO of Google. He helped with the IPO mm. of Blackstone. But then, of course, his real... Uh, climate Morgan Stanley is considered with what he did post-crisis. And the crisis was a really difficult time for Morgan Stanley, like most other banks, but for Morgan Stanley in particular. But post-crisis, he helped rebuild the trading division. The equities group, he took it to the dominant player, to the number one standing on Wall Street. Then he was tasked with repairing their fixed income division, which really was, you know, to be completely blunt, a train wreck. And he took some hard steps there, and hard steps in Wall Street means a big number of job cuts. But since then, it does seem to have rebounded. The trading group has done really well. And then he was given oversight of its traders and deal makers, head of the corporate investment bank. So it made sense for him to be rising to the position of a president because the CIB is about 50% of the firm's revenue. The other half of the Majority of the other half comes from wealth management. Andy Saperstein yeah. has helped build Morgan Stanley into this wealth management powerhouse, and that has been carried out really in the course of the last 10 years. You think about the Smith-Barney acquisition in 2010, from there all the way through to the E-Trade purchase last year, which was a jumbo deal, the biggest bank deal in over a decade, or probably even since the Smith-Barney deal again was carried out by Morgan Stanley, and that has shifted the center of gravity at the firm. 
it really has this balance of you know they have the standing among the elites of investment banking right. as well as such a big operation intending to customers as money Gorman's not leaving anytime soon though it doesn't sound like he's keen on leaving anytime soon our understanding he's already told the board the senior management that he wants to stick around for at least three more years and who can blame him this is the best performing major u.s bank stock in the last five years and the when the going is this good would you really want to walk off into the sunset so what happens now is these these four individuals and as as you write the shuffle thrusts the quartet into a public bake-off to succeed gorman what happens now well, I did speak with uh, Gorman, and he said it gives them time to spread their wings. So it really is going to play off as a bake-off. You have these four people right now, and these would be seen as the leading contenders. But that's now. That's six months from today. That's nine months from today. Three years is a long time on Wall Street. Your stock at record high. Your businesses that are firing on all cylinders. Something might go wrong. Other contenders might come about. The buy side is a wash in liquidity. Some of these people might get pushed away to much higher paying jobs or mm. very different jobs. So right. just because these four are the leading contenders right now doesn't necessarily mean this is how it will look three or four or five years from today. In the meantime, do they do anything, though, to increase, you know, the amount of women in terms of leadership, you know, the pipeline here? And just got about 20 seconds here. I, I think they will tell you that they are doing everything that they can to boost mm. that pipeline. They will tell you they have a number of senior women. Uh, Susie Huang, who's the co-head of their investment bank, is one of the most senior Asian women across Wall Street, and they are trying to promote other women as well. But when we see the big headlines like this, when we see the contenders, it, it does send out a message that maybe they would should have thought of a creative solution when it comes to thinking about successes. Just a little diversity, little diversity. Uh, check out that story at Bloomberg.com if you want to see the picture to get an idea of what we're talking about. Srinath Arajan broke this story. He got the scoop. Finance reporter at Bloomberg News in our interactive broker studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 10 minutes left in today's trading session, so let's get to it. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Margie Patel. She is Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management. $590 billion in assets under management. Margie, back with us on the phone from Boston. So, Margie, it's been an interesting week, an interesting couple of weeks, whether it was inflation news that sometimes made investors a little bit nervous, certainly in the equity markets, and then sometimes not. You know, we're watching the crypto market markets, which fell out of bed yesterday, bounced back, and they're bouncing back some more today. How do you make sense of what really matters fundamentally to the equity trade? Well, I think what the market is looking at most of all is the Fed's policy on interest rates. Uh, that's what's really, I think, relief that uh, from the Fed minutes that the Fed is nowhere near uh, thinking about raising rates because of inflation helped to drive the tech sector, which was oversold anyway. And I think the market is really looking for uh, large themes and narratives at this point. But that's the most important thing is, is there inflation? Is the Fed ready to tighten? And I think a review of their minutes said that isn't the case. So the market is having a little bit of a relief rally here. 
But I guess the question is, is what changes the Fed's mind? What, what, what are the inflation numbers that makes people in the Fed start to think differently about their targets for raising rates? Well, I think that's the problem is because the Fed has not made that clear, whether that's deliberate or, or they'll still uh, deciding among themselves what the signals would be. Uh, but basically, they, they haven't made clear what exactly would be a trigger point to change uh, and begin to draw liquidity out. And also, the Fed has talks about inflation, but the definition of inflation, the, the numbers that they look at as inflation, is not necessarily what the market's looking at, what consumers, what businesses are looking at for their price increases. So I think it's a little bit of confusion of, well, exactly what is the inflation rate that people should look at to try to figure out what the Fed would uh, would be sensitive to moving. And so there's a lot of uncertainty, and so I think people are just really trying to uh, get a grip on what will make the Fed react. Mark, and, yeah, I'm, a little conf- uh, I'm a little confused, yeah. though, because those Fed minutes came out, Tim and I were on air, and you did see equities take a little bit of a, of a dive on the Fed minutes, especially because the Fed was talking a little bit about asset prices and some concerns um, and seeming to that there were members of Fed starting to consider maybe talking about kind of what was the next move for the Fed. And we did see rates go up. So uh, how do you see today being a relief rally off of that? Did you think there was a rethink a little bit after that initial reaction to the Fed minutes yesterday? Yes, because I think people are trying to parse out what will be the Fed's reaction to what specifically, and that isn't very clear. Uh, it, it's just, we need to take the Fed's pulse to figure out what they're looking at and how close they are, and that's what the market was doing yesterday. Today, the market feels a little relieved, um, and so I think that uh, I personally think it'll be a long time before we see the Fed do anything in the way of tightening to try to raise rates. What do you mean by long time? Uh, certainly for the rest of this year, well into next year. Rest of this year, well into next year. So is that something that with you, when you see these, when you, you know, with the tech sell-off a few weeks ago, is that something that you think is a, a widely held belief? Uh, no, I think people are, are really trying to figure out what they can latch on to because we've never had a recession like this COVID recession it hasn't been driven by economic conditions. Uh, the Fed has a monetary policy that we've never seen before. And also the Fed is saying, um, watch for our reaction, as opposed to saying, these are the data that we're looking for that will be our trigger. So the market's sort of flailing around saying, well, what inflation numbers that they're looking at? Uh, certainly in the real world we're seeing that, but the Fed isn't reacting to it. So, And then I think that keys into the biggest sector, which is the tech sector, that's been the most uh, overvalued performance-wise and so it's the most sensitive at any time we see any uh, any wobbly in what the 10 years doing that makes weakness in tech. Today, uh, 10 years rallied, tech's up, uh, especially techs have been, I think, gotten pretty oversold here over the short term, mm. worrying about interest rates. Well, how do you think investors should think about tech specifically? Should you even be thinking short term or do we know longer term, especially some of those big momentum players, that they're going to be around for a while? That's where we're still going to see some growth. That's where we're going to still see some momentum. And it makes yes. sense, fundamentally. Yes, I think that uh, those companies, the high-quality, proven growers, are going to continue to be above-average performers over the next few years. Um, but still, we have a lot of short-term trading, nervous money that's come out of tech. And when they come out of tech, they come out of the small, risky names and the big names, too. 
So I think you're just seeing a little bit of market volatility. So we're trying to look through that and not really trying to trade the tech sector based on the short-term moves, but just say long-term, we think we'll still see higher growth out of that sector than most other market sectors. So we still like the sector a lot. What are your thoughts on cryptocurrency? Yesterday, we saw quite the decline with Bitcoin, more than 30% before making up much of that in Bitcoin at last check, trading higher on the day today. Um, what are clients asking you about Bitcoin and how are you feeling about it? Uh, we're not seeing many questions on that. Really? Uh, it's uh, because our uh, clients are really broker advised. So when they get nervous about that sort of thing, they talk to their advisor. He calms them down, and then they feel feel better about the world. Uh, we think it's it's a speculative development. It doesn't give you the information. Say that if you looked at the price of gold, might give you about market sentiment and risk and so forth. That's interesting. I'm surprised not getting more questions about it. Yeah. That is interesting. I mean, I don't know. How do you think about it? You, you know, have seen a lot of different cycles, a lot of funky new wave investments, whether it was high yield junk bonds way back when that have now become kind of a norm, normal part of an investor's portfolio. Uh, how do you think about digital currencies? Well, I think it's mostly um, a market that participants are short-term traders, uh, opportunistic investors, uh, short-term, and uh, maybe new people to trading. So it seems very exciting and new and fresh. And uh, that's how we always learn and, uh, until the market teaches us a good lesson about fundamentals. So I think it's, it's just really reflecting liquidity, a surge of new investors, something that seems on the surface very exciting and new and techy, and, uh, but not much to do with uh, fundamentals or value, relative value of currencies, for example, or anything about inflation. It's we just too volatile. I should say Bitcoin paired gains as the Treasury seeks to toughen tax compliance, but now is back above uh, $40,000, so up another $1,800 today. Yeah, we've seen we've seen really, really dramatic moves. One quick uh, last point, 20 seconds here, Margie. Um, what do you want to avoid in this environment? Uh, we think that uh, some of the smaller um, tech names are still a little vulnerable here because mm. we still see some money coming out of those sectors. And we think some of the uh, economically sensitive sectors have gotten way ahead of themselves with market enthusiasm on the rebound. We think they're going to be kind of dead money for the next six months. All right. Good to know. Good to check in with you. Margie Patel, Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management. $590 billion in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from Boston. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.